HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. Made with a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. To learn more, visit rt11.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Alex Piasecki and Patrick Matier, co-founders of Seal the Seasons, the national local foods brand that partners directly with growers to freeze and distribute local produce across the country. Seal the Seasons has literally created a new distribution system that makes locally grown produce scalable and supports farmers and consumers in more than 30 states and 4,000 retail locations across the U.S., Welcome, guys. I'm very excited to have you on. Thanks for having us, Allie. Yeah, I'm pumped. Um, sometimes it's a little hard for me to have two guests because when you're not in person, I have to be like, Patrick, answer this. Alex, answer this. So I often forget to do that. So bear with me. Are you guys together like you can say, I'll take this one kind of silently to each other or are you in different places? Uh, we're in different places, but uh, okay. I feel like we, we, we both kind of know what, what we you know take. best. Yeah, so awesome. I think, I, okay. think we'll be, I think we'll be ready to take that <laughs> Okay. It's like the co-founder, yeah. you know, silent code. Um, all right. Well, let's start with uh, welcome and thank you for coming on. And I've known Sail the Seasons. Thank you guys were in the Chobani Incubator like right after us. Um, and we have a lot of mutual friends and you came at your company. Um, mine is a more convoluted way, but very much in sort of an effort to support a better food system. Yours is in a very direct, literal way, supporting a better food system. Um, so why don't you tell me a little bit about how it came to be you know, what, what was the problem that you identified, you know, give everyone sort of the context of it. And then how did you decide to solve it? Yeah. Happy to take that one, Allie. This is Patrick here. Um, so it all started for us back in, uh, 2013, 2014, 
I was actually working at the Carborough Farmers Market uh, down here in North Carolina. Um, I was at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill at the time, um, studying undergrad as a Tar Heel. And <laughs> every Saturday, went to Duke, right? <laughs> I, I thought we just wouldn't bring it up. Just, <laughs> you brought possible. it up. You brought up the Tar Heel thing. I had to just <laughs> kind of throw in my like, you know, my. <clears throat> Uh, nobody's it, perfect nobody's it's fine perfect. it's fine i'm i actually it was a really really <laughs> long time ago and i never really was much of a blue devil no offense to the blue devils but anyway <laughs> carry on patrick so you know every saturday morning i'd wake up ride my bicycle over to the farmer's market um and really just spent a lot of time with our local growers um and with local you know consumers who were, you know, really loyal to the farmer's market showing up, you know, every Saturday morning at, at 6.57 in the morning to be mm-hmm. first in line, um, you know, for that heirloom tomato or uh, that perfect uh, bunch of uh, blackberries that was picked the day before. Um, and speaking with a lot of the growers, uh, they were doing great at the farmer's market, but they couldn't always sell their, he- or sell their whole crop. Mm-hmm. Um, they had extra boxes of tomatoes, which... Uh, We would gladly donate to a local community, but there had to be a better way for the farmers really to get paid for their passion uh, and all the effort that was going into this crop. Um, So, you know, that was a big challenge we saw that, you know, farmers and consumers just weren't getting connected in the right way. Yeah. And every, you know, every uh, week going to the grocery store, shopping for smoothies, you know, trying to eat healthier as as a college student. I was just amazed that we didn't have local options of these, you know, delicious blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, strawberries that our state was so well known for. Yeah. Um, So many misalignments in the distribution systems. I mean, I remember when I worked for Just Food, like even trying to deliver, you know, leftover, amazingly beautiful produce that didn't sell at the market was really challenging because our trucks would get ticketed and like we couldn't even do a good deed, you know, without having to pay for it literally. And, you know, then you have all of these consumers that want local produce, but that's rough on a rainy day. It's rough in New York in February, you know, and, and yet you have all these people on both sides that feel really passionate about eating good and supporting a local system. And there really was like, just like two, almost like star-crossed lovers in a way. And that's where you came in. You summed it up better than I could. <laughs> you can use the star-crossed lovers thing if you'd like to in your literature. Yeah, I just, you know, just give me a little asterisk at the bottom. But so, so Patrick, what would you do? Um, so we stumbled around for a while, just to be mm-hmm. honest with you, you know, um, we saw an opportunity to freeze the product and we came, we came up with the concept of the company pretty quickly. But I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, finding the best way to implement that and your journey to find how you implement it scale mm-hmm. is usually a really rocky one. Yeah. Um, so for the first like 18 months, we were obsessed with finding a flash freezer machine. Mm-hmm. We, we went down the road to Durham. We found a, a Brazilian cheese ball company that had one in our area. <laughs> That's <But> awesome. <laughs> you, you know, you know, um, you know, food manufacturing and food safety. Yeah. They didn't want to let kids anywhere near their facility. Yeah. Um, so that was off the table. Uh, eventually, we found uh, a little shared use kitchen, a commissary kitchen, which many entrepreneurs be familiar with, 
the one in our, our area was called PFAP. Mm-hmm. Um, and we started freezing the product on bread sheet pans, which mm-hmm. we'd roll in and out of a negative 20 degree freezer, um, literally selecting fruit by hand to go onto the sheet pans and, and picking fruit out with our, you know, with gloves on into trash cans uh, to right. get rid of the coals. Um, so it was a very labor intensive, very much a, a passion of love at first. And then what did you do with the sheet pans of frozen fruit? Like where did, did you keep them on sheet pans and sell them? Did you bag them? Did you like what, and where did they go? Yeah. So in the, in the very early days we bought, you know, food grade Ziploc bags off the internet. Um, I think from you know, food, food grade, plastic bags.com shout out uh-huh. to them. Um, <laughs> we did food grade couches.com. So <laughs> <laughs> shout out to them too. <laughs> stuck, you know, stuck our stickers on there, which of course they didn't stay stuck no, when they got to the they retail never store. Do. Yeah. So Weaver street was, uh, you know, sticking them on the outside of the freezer glass to try to tell people what our products were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and but you yeah. had some customers then. So you so you had a model that that basically you would buy produce from the farmers. They you wouldn't once it was yours, it was yours. And then you would freeze it on these sheet pans, put them in bags, the labels would fall off, and you found a couple of I'm imagining smaller grocers that that took them. Like yep. was that kind of where it was at for, you know, the first year 18 months or something that was the first year yeah Mm -hmm. we had smaller grocers some some uh co-op grocery stores some some startup grocery stores community-based grocery stores uh that would use some of them even use plus from the produce department Mm -hmm. to sell our items without a barcode right Uh, we we figured the barcode out eventually but uh, yeah that was the first year delivering out of the back of my pickup truck my dad and i built a a freezer yeah, insulated, wow. uh, R19 rated, you know, plywood box that we put in the back of my pickup truck for me to run deliveries within 30 minutes. And, I mean, uh, it's very cool. And and so then what, I mean, that's exhausting. And I'm sure you had moments where you were like, what the hell am I doing this for? But how did it then, what was the next sort of step in the evolution of it? Yeah, so I think the kind of the next stage in the evolution was um, building the team and, you know, bringing people on like Alex who, um, allowed us to kind of rethink what we were doing for one market and think about, okay, you know, doing things ourselves may work in North Carolina, but how are we going to build a team of people that will allow us to do this at scale? Mm-hmm. And what other partners do we need in the mix? Because we're not very good at this manufacturing. You know, we're not making the best margin. Do we don't need the CEO doing the deliveries in his pickup trucks? Yes, for how sure. How are we going to build a team to make this happen? So Alex, going, heading over to you now, I mean, first of all, that's a lot of foresight, right? And I mean, you presented the challenge of how, you know, it it sounds like you had a great concept, you had a a clear problem that needed to be solved, you had some of a solution, you clearly had a great mission, you just needed to work out sort of the logistics and the scalability of it, which obviously ties to efficiency and profitability. And Alex, how did you, how did you crack that nut? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I, I, Patrick and I have been friends for, for years at this point. So mm-hmm. I think, I think one of the big things uh, that he and I, you know, always preach, you know, we've known each other since second grade now 
is that, you know, the best idea always wins. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who it comes from. You know, it's, it's about who, the best ideas. Uh, and, you know, for me, what got me extremely excited about Celo Seasons and having seen Patrick, you know, really initiate and, you know, get it going in its nascent sta- stages mm-hmm. was that I saw the scalability aspect of it uh, almost immediately. Which um, is interesting, you know, right? Because, I mean, I, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. it's what you're doing is actually really hard to if it because scalability and local foods don't naturally go together, right? Like I said, they've been sort of these like star-crossed lovers forever. Like there's almost something inherently ironic about scalable local just as a concept. So how you just you knew that you were going to be able to create a model in North Carolina that then you were going to be able to take that model and then go to any state, find the farmers there, figure out the distribution system and sell specifically to retailers in that state. Was that what you meant by like, this is inherently scalable? Yeah. I mean, I think for, for me, what was exciting is that, you know, the quality of fruit that we were bringing in in mm-hmm. North Carolina was superior. It was mm-hmm. better than what was being sold already. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt like that model, that, that farm to table model, which has yep. been, you know, so tried and true. And like you said, usually doesn't scale very well, could actually be taken to different parts of the country to focus on what fruits that they do best. Yeah, especially um, with frozen. Right. Exactly, exactly. So for us, like I, I saw the opportunity where um, when we're partnering with people, we're always concerned about not only, you know, wh- how are they going to help us, but how are we going to help them? Um, right. you're in, everybody's intentions and everybody's, you know, strategic directions need to be somewhat in the same direction mm-hmm. or else whether it's, it's a year a or two years yeah. down the road. Yeah. Somebody's going to break it off because they see something shinier. Yeah. Uh, so what I loved about the, you know, the supply chain and the, the products we were building was that it was rooted in these farmers who really wanted to find more homes for their produce. And, you know, they were really good at producing a high quality product and a high quality piece of fruit or vegetable, but sales and marketing, you know, you don't get into farming, so you can right. talk to more people. I know. You're in the so farm because you want to, you really want <laughs> to do people. the work. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you yeah. know, and, and you want to do I that. I gave farmers market behalf. tours for, uh, for oh, three yeah. years. And it's funny because like, I knew the ones that like, there were like three <laughs> at Union Square that actually wanted to talk to a gaggle of kids <laughs> or people. Most of them were just like, keep on walking, keep on walking. Like, I'll throw some strawberries at you. But no, I don't want to talk <laughs> about what time I woke up this morning and why the eggs are brown. Um, OK, so but so but that that does lead me to. Did you guys figure out what to do? I mean, clearly you're not still making sheet pans and delivering them in the back of, of Patrick's truck. So what was kind of the first step in building this kind of like scalable model? Yeah. I mean, the first step was to stop doing it ourselves. Like we were, mm-hmm. you know, 21, you know, 22 hiring people off of Craigslist, you know, the, it's a, there's a gaggle of errors that were occurring in this in this small manufacturing space. Um, so the first thing we needed to do was to get the production of this product into farmers' hands. Um, and so mm-hmm. when we talk about co-packed product, almost all of our packers are, are, are who are packing our fruits and vegetables are actually agricultural farms, or they are agriculturally related. Um, so, you know, for us, they are now both growing that blueberry and picking that blueberry. 
they're freezing that blueberry. Um, they're doing all the food safety, all of the inventory management on that blueberry, and then they're packing into veg- and, into our our marketed our design bags. Interesting. So as part of sort of the so you're giving them essentially another distribution channel. Um, did you also are you supplying the the freezing and the training and everything like it, I mean, it seems like that's like a thousand points of light, basically, where every farm has its own freezer and its own packer and its own HACCP plan. Is that or are they kind of sending it to a place and there you've consolidated some of it? No, I mean, I think I think it, it varies on each partner. Everybody mm-hmm. has a different specialty. Some it tends to usually be uh, a hub art. We call it a our hub farm mm-hmm. tends to be a larger blueberry farm mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, they built this facility to freeze fruit with a IQF, uh, you know, mm-hmm. line, individually quick freezing line, um, because they wanted to find a way to use more of their blueberries. They, right. they couldn't stand throwing it away either yeah. because it's, uh, you know, for them, they knew there was something better to do with them. Uh, mm-hmm. And so maybe they're good at freezing the blueberries, but they've never frozen, you know, a blackberry or a strawberry. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we will kind of walk through that process with them and, you know, it's trial and error, you know, sometimes things work, sometimes things don't. Um, and then, you know, the packing is usually, you know, some people have done it before, but sometimes people have never done it. Right. Um, and so that can also be just a period of time where you're just trying to figure out, okay, what machinery do we have access to? Um, you know, what's the packing style? Uh, and you know, how are we going to do this? Um, and we've actually seen our partners, you know, invest more in their, in their packing infrastructure right? because we brought them all this business and they want to be able to do it more efficiently for other customers too. It's so cool. So what was the first big account? And like, when did you guys know that, okay, we've actually got ourselves a real business here and this is going to be like, you know, we're, we're playing in like a, I don't even want to say like the big league, but like the JV team, <laughs> like we're solidly, we're solidly in this. Yeah. So with frozen, you know, you kind of have to, you got to scale up a little quicker uh, to some bigger stores than maybe with some other categories, you know, working with pretty big production minimums and mm-hmm. uh, packaging minimums. So uh, we went from, you know, our first 10 community grocery stores and co-ops uh, to almost 500 stores in our second year. Wow. Um, pretty much our, our first three customers who are all at the same time uh, was Lowe's Foods, Harris Teeter, and Whole Foods uh, South Division, very soon followed by Ingalls Markets uh, just a few months later. So, And do you remember, I mean, I'm sure you do, do you remember pitching them? And what what was the pitch and why do you think it resonated with them? Oh, yeah. Um, we were actually <laughs> on our, our team sales retreat last week, and I opened up our original, original yeah. Harris Teeter pitch deck, um, which was only seven slides long. Mm-hmm. Uh, we That's had a slide. We talked about our vision and mission for the company. We showed some images and, and names of our local growers mm-hmm. and just showed them the locally grown frozen products. And um, our Harris Teeter category manager thought it was going to be a hit. And boy, was she right. That's so cool. It's really great. It's a great, you know, it's like there are all these great companies out there and you can do good and do well and they don't have to be in conflict and you don't have to be all over the freaking place saying how much money you've raised 
you're just like doing good stuff. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about a lot of other things. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Root 11 Potato Chips. From the moment Root 11 dropped their first batch of chips back in the early days of 1992, they understood their destiny as a high-quality producer. Instead of succumbing to the frenzy of mass production, they took advantage of their small size and made chipping a personal art form. The payoff was immediate, an incredible potato chip. With a secret recipe and superior ingredients, their mission is to make an outstanding product in a safe and clean environment. In this world of uncertainty that we live in, Root 11 potato chips believe comfort food can be just that. Know where your food comes from. To learn more, visit rt11.com. I'm back with Patrick Matier and Alex Piasecki of Seal the Seasons. So year two, you're in 500 stores. You're still doing only North Carolina fruit. Is that where you were at or had you expanded into anywhere else? Correct. We're doing only North Carolina fruit and we are only doing two or three items because we couldn't freeze enough strawberries to launch a strawberry skew on its own. Right. Got it. (laughs) And so what, so in that case, you kind of were faced with, in a way, I would think of it as like, do we go with more fruit varieties and do more skews or do we try to now start replicating this in other states? And I imagining that you kind of did both. You're spot on. We, um, we added some North Carolina fruit items. Uh, we also launched a broccoli item back in the day. Mm, mm-hmm. We even tried our hand at uh, locally uh, far, locally um, fished shrimp. <laughs> we did some kind of shrimp uh, with right. our IKEA machine, and um, and then we and then we moved to the Northeast Market in 2018. And what was it like moving into a new market? You know, were were farmers and growers excited to meet you? Did you, I would imagine you showed them some numbers that were helpful. Um, You know, how did you break into the community a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that when when it comes to finding the new farms, it uh, there's, there's not a really a science to it. Uh, it's much more an art form and, and, and a grind. Um, mm-hmm. you know, most of these folks do not have websites, so you're not going to be able right. to Google search this, you know, these blueberry farms in New Jersey or this cherry mm-hmm. farm in New York. Um, it truly does come from a word of mouth situation. So a lot of times it just came, you know, to driving, um, you know, go out to New Jersey, go out to mm-hmm. New York, um, you know, visit, visit with them, uh, explain what you're trying to do. And then, uh, you know, I think one of the things that we used to do that I think was really helpful was leave, you know, just like, you know, if you're applying for, you know, a loan, you know, you ask for some references. Mm-hmm. We would have farm references from North Carolina that we provide. Yeah. And, you know, and, you know, they weren't stellar. Like people weren't like raving about us all the time. They're like, yeah, they, they do what they said they were going to do. Right. Um, <laughs> right. they, pay, they paid late the first year. They paid a little less late the second year. And they're paying a little bit more on time this year. That's awesome. And, I love and they, that. The, and I think that's yeah. the story you kind of try to cultivate is ultimately like, hey, 
you know, we're not going to do it right, right away, but we're so determined that we're going to figure it out. Uh, and here's, here's someone who knows that. Can we, before we get kind of into like other stuff that I want to ask Patrick, I want to just kind of go back to you on why, why local ag, like, you know, where are these farmers at in their headspace? It has not been an easy ride for them with the rise of, you know, the industrial farm and, you know, sort of people just not, you know, I think there's been, I don't know, I remember just starting like in 2010, you know, locals started getting a thing, but then all of a sudden all these other big big organic and big non-GMO. And then even like the keto and that, like there are all these food trends that kind of make local, it, it doesn't have a great marketing agency behind it. Right. And somehow it's, it gets lost when people are making their hierarchy of, you know, the values that they want to have around the food that they eat. So you're a champion and like, why is it so important? Just, just so everyone understands. Yeah. I mean, I think that local is really hard for, for some of the reasons we already talked about. It's hard for Wall Street to turn that into a corporation and, uh, you know, really be authentic about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it leaves it up to Main Street to, you know, be those true local businesses that we want to visit and we want to support in our communities. Um and in the food space, it's so important because local food is real food. And that's mm-hmm. what it always comes back to for us. If you want to have a nutrient-dense diet that is full of, you know, the healthy vitamins and minerals that we all need, uh, you want to get those from real food as part of your diet, not as a, a vitamin you take. Yeah. Um, then buying from your local farmers who have harvested that product and have taken care of that product through the supply chain to get it to you in a nutrient-dense form, is going to be the best way to do that. Um, So when we think about our local food system, we want to build the strongest local food system that can create a nutrient-rich diet and an affordable diet for our community and also have a positive impact on, right now, hundreds of uh, U.S. families, American families, through Seal the Seasons or um, you know, thousands of family farmers, tens of thousands of family farmers through your local farmer's market. Yeah, um, yeah. Not to mention the reduction in greenhouse gases, the economic connection between urban and rural communities. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we really want to get pretty meta. I think a lot of our political divide is because of an economic divide, you know, yep. between urban and rural. And the more we can be more economically connected, the more we understand each other and, and the more we can be um, you know, a country all working together. Yeah, no, I think that's beautifully put. And I will add as a cook flavor, (laughs) you know, um, I mean, I don't know if people know what happens to the strawberries that you buy in the middle of January that come from, you know, 5,000 miles away, but needless to say, they are artificially to some extent ripened and they just can't be as yummy and delicious as a strawberry that is just picked and flash frozen, um, <clears throat> especially by growers that care. So all of this segues into, 
something you guys mentioned to me before the show, which is that until now, I mean, you're in five, like 4,000 stores. I'm, does every different region have different vegetables and fruit? Because that is what that region produces. Yeah, it's, it might sound a little crazy to people, but like we have over 70, I think we're past 70 different unique SKUs or products um, because we have a different blueberry for every region of the country. So, cool. um, uh, so you know, if you're in New York uh, or New Jersey, you're going to get a New Jersey blueberry. If you're in California, you're going to get a California blueberry. If you're in Oregon, you get an Oregon blueberry. Um, so every, you know, every region has like its own, you know, small batch kind of curated uh local fruit and vegetable offerings um you know so i think it's you know for us it's really important to you know show uh the community and also the customers that like we authentically know what this community grows and what it doesn't grow Mm -hmm. um we're not going to pretend like uh you know florida or you know we can't say florida grows cherries because florida can't grow cherries i know it's so funny i don't know if you've watched clarkson's farm at all but basically if you know jeremy clarkson i don't know why Mm -hmm. i know this except my boyfriend (laughs) but basically he was like the top gear guy and then he ended up he has this farm in the Cotswolds and he tries to make it productive and they're not allowed to sell things that aren't local. And there's like a pineapple in the shop (laughs) and like the (laughs) inspector kind of comes in and he's like, really? Like, where did you grow this pineapple? Oh, and uh, those avocados, like, and they're like, well, we bought them locally. We didn't grow them, but it's a very funny little moment. Um, So, so you're starting this direct to consumer channel now, which is kind of amazing. How are you going to be, are you going to have like, in New York, I can only get my New York blueberries, or can I be like, I'd like to try a California blueberry, an Oregon blueberry, and a Minnesota blueberry? Uh, so yeah, we're our goal is to you know as you enter the website, you have a kind of a curated experience from the get go, mm-hmm. um, based on where your what your zip code is or what your location is. Um, you know, you're going to get the website that has you your know stuff. your products, right. your farmers, the profiles from you from your from your region. Um, because, you know, uh, to us, like that's the trickiest part about this brand is that we want to be local and, and very regional. Uh, mm-hmm. but at the same time we have to operate on a national scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so our team operates, you know, across all these different regions. Um, but we want to make it feel like you're, you're, you're logging onto like a CSA website, right. a portal through that. Right. Um, and so that, that sort of feel is still what we're kind of going for. And, you know, direct to consumer, it's not. You know, for frozen, it's such a it's so tricky to ship uh, frozen, yeah. and you have to mm-hmm. ship it so quickly. We don't see it as a, a huge, you know, revenue opportunity, but it's right. also extremely important to get it to people who don't have access to maybe a grocery store right away. Yeah, um, and and people who you know are really big fans of fruits and vegetables, but they just can't get it in their local stores. Yeah, uh, which is you know a huge problem, even in North Carolina, but I mean, throughout the U.S., food deserts are a massive problem. So. To be able to address that both, you know, with, you know, direct consumer as well as, you know, getting our, our super fans who are the crazy ones who want to order 12 pounds of strawberries at once, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of give them an out option is what we're really excited about and uh, totally. you know, learn more, learn more from them too. I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't, I, similar to you guys, I don't think that, you know, we're getting into every household in America through grocery, I mean, you know, through D to C, like, I don't. I don't see us as like a primarily direct to consumer brand. I'm not spending any money on ads or anything like that, but it is kind of at this point, a channel that 
you might as well have, you know, <laughs> as long as you're not like losing, you know, bucket loads of money on it. It's a nice way to connect people with the brand. And, you know, if someone wants to buy 12 things of strawberries, you know, awesome. I, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Um, although I do have this like little fantasy of like trying, like doing a blind taste test of blueberries from all different states <laughs> being like, <laughs> this one is from Kansas. Um, okay. So I want to talk about something a little different for a minute or two, which is your relationship. Um, you know, the other night I was feeling particularly sort of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of at the helm of this ship a little bit. I have an incredible group of people around me, but at the end of the day, they are looking to me to make decisions and to, um, lead. And it can be pretty lonely. I think there's, you know, a lot of, um, I don't know, the, the, the whole founder, I'm so lonely thing is a little bit boring to me. And I don't want to really, you know, go too much into it. But the reality is, is that it, it is. So I often think, you know, it would be great to have a partner or a co-founder doing this. And then I hear a lot of stories where that doesn't work out. Um, and that can be really painful too. It's like a marriage, essentially. So you guys seem to, and, you know, maybe it's because you both know how to fight well, or maybe it's because you have such different skill sets, but you do seem to have a really, really good, solid, loving partnership. And I guess I would just like for the people who do have co-founders out there, I'd like some words of wisdom. Alex, let's start with you. <laughs> uh, this, this is the one where I feel like one of us doesn't want to start. Um, That's why I yeah. said, Alex, let's start with you. <laughs> uh, good cue. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's, it's both complicated and it's not complicated at the same time. Um, yeah. You know, I think we were very lucky that we were friends before we were partners. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a, having the basis of friendship and respect and, um, you knowing that we're independent people before we even jumped into this business together, I think mm -hmm. is a, is a big step. We both bring different things to the table. I think, um, you know, we use the, uh, entrepreneur on operating system EOS and, you know, Patrick, our visionary, I'm our integrator and, you know, mm. we fulfill different roles in the company. Wait, can you, what is EOS? Uh, it's the, it's, I'm quite sure it's from the book traction, uh, okay. but it's a entrepreneurial operating system. Um, it changed the game for our company as far as having our weekly meetings from making them absolute chaos to <laughs> organized chaos, I guess. Okay. Uh, so, you know, but it, it basically it, it's, it focuses on accountability areas. And so I think Patrick and I are accountable for different things. So right. we, you know, we can have opinions about what each other are doing. And we always do because, you know, you know, we all think we're, we're right, mm -hmm. but it comes from a point of, you know, respect that that person is accountable. So they make that call and they're the one who, they're the one who makes that final call on, you know, marketing or, or sales. Uh, or fundraising, for example. So, right. and then, you know, I think the, the third one is, you know, I think you have to work on it. You have to work on the partnership. Um, I think uh, it takes open communication, calling, you're able to 
politely call people out when they're mm-hmm. not doing their job, mm-hmm. but also know when your partner just needs you to do it, needs you to mm-hmm. take over. And uh, I think Patrick and I both have had times, especially over the last year and a half, which has been, you know, personally intense. challenging and intense. You know, there's times where I'll, uh, it feels like, you know, Patrick might be slacking a little bit or might, might just be behind on some stuff. And, you know, I, I need to ease in and I need to do more. I need to put, put a little bit more on the gas. And then I know Patrick's done the same for me when I need it. Right. Um, and that's, that just takes a little bit of communication, but also I think now we've worked together for so long. I think we both kind of inherently do it for each other. Um, I and I think that. that's, uh, and I think, and I think if you develop a good team, it doesn't have to be a business partner. It can be your lead marketing lead or your operations lead. They can sense that they want to make you happy. Like, you yeah. know, they, they, they know to lay on the gas that they need to lay on the gas and also to let, give you space that you're doing your own thing. Yeah, no, for sure. Patrick, what about you? What's your, what's your advice? Yeah, um, I got one. I'll just keep it kind of short and simple. I got some, some really great advice when we were starting the company. Um, was that you have to be passionate about your business, but you can't be emotional about your business decisions. Mm. Um, and I think about that all the time, whether it's my personal decisions. Um, for example, in the beginning, we started the company, we did fruits and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And we decided, you know, early on that we had to cut off vegetables for a while. And I really wanted to support those vegetable farmers, but mm-hmm. we had to take a break so we could build the business. And now, you know, years later, we're coming back, we're doing vegetables in a big way. So mm-hmm. it'll, it'll pay off. But, you know, with, with Alex, and my relationship, we have to be passionate with our ideas and our accountability areas, but we can't get emotionally invested in one idea. We have to recognize that, you know, our partner's idea may be that much stronger. And just because an idea is ours doesn't make it that much more important. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's, it's interesting. Have you had other, like, cause that segues into, you know, I mean, deciding not to do vegetables, right? Like I can literally picture you feeling like you're letting the farmers down, feeling like you're, you know, you're missing out on an opportunity, like worrying about all of that. How do you, how do you train yourself not to get emotional? I mean, I I guess like when you start feeling it, where do you, what, what do you tell yourself? You know, how do you talk yourself off of that, I guess? Because I have a hard time with that, honestly. I, not so much that I'm that attached to my own ideas, but everything feels really freaking big and really important and really heavy a lot of the time. And whether it's a decision about, you know, someone's compensation or going into an account or, you know, how to communicate something to an investor. Like, I'd like to not feel as emotional about this stuff, but I don't know exactly what to say to myself other than like hydrate and go to bed. Hydration is so important. I know, it's like everything. That is such a key. It's like Um, the only thing I tell my children. They like, they literally, all five of them, the only thing that like they could all point to is like, she's always told me to hydrate. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm like, you know, I feel sick, hydrate. This one was mean to me at school, hydrate. You know, like it's just my answer to everything. But yeah, so help me out. To answer your question, you know, we we work into our company culture. you know, mindfulness is something that I've learned. It's it's a practice. It's something you always have to to be on top of. And 
you're never going to be a master of. You always need to keep working on it. And if you, you let it fall out of practice, you'll really lose it. Yeah. Um, so whether it's at the company sales retreat, um, whether it's at our weekly EOS, you know, L10 meeting every Monday. L10 um, means. Le- it means level 10. We don't, we don't know. We don't know what it means. <laughs> I don't know. It means really good. And we never get, we never get, to, we all score the meeting at the end. And it's supposed to be, you know, aim for 10. And, you know, we've been doing this for four years now. And I'm pretty sure we've never actually achieved a 10 yet. So, so. Wait, so this goes back to traction. And this is everyone at the end of every meeting gives the meeting a score. Yep. Yeah. Oh, my every, gosh. Every, every time. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm gathering that you get points taken off when the founder just stops everything, interjects and starts like hijacking the meeting in like 10 different directions. Is that accurate? Definitely. One of the yeah. scoring pieces, you have to follow the meeting agenda. You got to follow the same, you know, the same agenda every week. And who writes the agendas? Like the marketing team writes the agenda for the marketing meeting and the ops team writes the agenda for the ops meeting? Or... It gets updated by each individual person, um, you know, before the meeting. So they have each, everybody has a time to talk about their KPIs, their rocks or quarterly goals and letting everyone know whether it's on track or off track. And then, you know, we reserve the majority of the meeting, like an hour of it is all for what we call IDS, which is uh, issues, something and something. Uh, Basically, (laughs) any, any big initiatives or things we have to like actually discuss out in longer form all happens during that time. Um, so, and that happens with, we, we've done, our whole entire team is on that one. So like, you know, Mm -hmm. our culture of like, you know, everybody sees what's going on at the business. Like we're reporting out on fundraising in front of everybody. We're reporting out on sales in front of everybody. We want everybody to know what's going on and have that ownership. How many people are on the team right now? I just literally got out interviews with our, I think it's our 11th or our 12th. Um, so yeah, I think we're, we're looking to hire one more right now. Awesome. Um, That's and 10 total. We have one more coming on. 11. Yeah. I mean, I'm very into everyone knowing exactly what's going on in every area. And I'm a little nervous about what that's going to look like, you know, when it's 15, 20 people, you know, but I, I do like the, I, I feel like something gets lost when you start, just siloing things too much. Yeah. We want everyone to feel like they, they have vision to what their everyday job is. And Mm -hmm. that's increasingly important. I think now Mm -hmm. we used to be a company that was in the office all five days. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, you know, with the pandemic and now you're hiring remote uh, people that are remote. Some of our prior local employees have now moved to uh, because their respective partners have found different job opportunities somewhere else. Mm-hmm. or school opportunities somewhere else. And, you know, we've decided that we like the team we have. We want to try to do everything in our power to keep them. Um, and making everybody understand what everybody's doing on a day-to-day basis is, is important to that. And we find that weekly meeting to be a good touch point for that. Yeah, for sure. Okay, I want to switch gears one more time and talk about sales a little bit. Um, I guess sales and marketing in the sense that, you know, A, how have you, I'm sure there's been iterations in the way that you're messaging this, you know, to consumers. How do you kind of, how do you stand out, I guess? How do you build awareness about the brand? How do you build, you know, I would imagine repeat's pretty easy because the quality is so strong that they just come back to get you. Um, But, you know, 
just some really kind of rough, what does your sales team sort of look like? Are you mostly in natural doors? I guess at this point, 4,000, you're probably in a bunch of conventional too, but, you know, give me a little bit of a lay of the land. Yeah. So we're, we're in about 3,500 or maybe 3,700 conventional doors and about, mm. about 200 to 300 natural doors. We're actually okay. really under indexed yeah. there. We're really pushing to, um, to grow our natural business this year. So um, we're really lucky to bring on Presence Marketing as a partner mm-hmm. uh, about 60 days ago and um, are just hitting the ground running. We've gone from three UNFI warehouses to start the year. And we'll be in eight by the end of this year. It's just awesome. this really exciting growth and natural. Um, but conventional is where we built we built the bread and butter of the business. Which is actually kind of cool because you're, you know, to the extent that, you know, I, I guess I'm trying to think of who competition is. I guess it's Cascadian. I, I don't know who else. Dole, Wyman's, Cascadian, and and Private Label. And then right. there's, a, there's a handful of other brands that focus on... Uh, specific fruits, but you know, we, 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 we kind of offer that full portfolio. So that's who we see as our competition. Right. Interesting. And yeah. So, I mean, it's good to be in places that they're not a lot of times too. Um, so in terms of that marketing, you know, what do you, what is your point of differentiation? How have you iterated and like, it took us a very long time and obviously it is still evolving, but I feel like we have so many things to say and no place to say it. So like, I'm always trying to figure out like, what's the, like this like hierarchy of messaging, like what's number one, like, is it the ingredients? Is it that it helps? Is it that it like, how, how do you play around with that? Yeah, this is exactly what I wanted to hit on. I think the most important thing we've done in the last, most important thing we've done since we started the company, Ali, was um, to, you know, ante up and find the right brand strategy firm and mm-hmm. packaging firm that can help us tell that story. Mm-hmm. You know, we one of the things Alex and I all the time, we have to think about what our strengths are, but also we have to know what are, you know, where we're weaker and where we yep. have gaps. Um, and doing brand strategy was one of those gaps. So um, we made a huge pivot in I think it was 2018 or 19 and we hired a awesome brand strategy firm called good dog. Um, and we hired a specific, you know, natural food packaging company. All they did was natural food packaging, mm-hmm. uh, called make and matter, um, and worked with those two groups to just completely go through that process. You know, they interviewed our team members, they interviewed our board members, they interviewed farmers, they talked to consumers, you know, yep. um, it was just, it was a long process. It took us about 10 months start to finish, but it was the most important thing we really did as a company to, to get to where we are today. Yeah. And I, I want to touch on that for a second because I, you know, it's, we're always trying to figure out that balance between like growth and profitability and like growth and, you know, cash management. And, you know, how long can we eke out something before we have to spend money (laughs) on it? And I remember, you know, talking to who's now our like lead investor on our last round that we did. And it was just, you know, before any, anything started happening with investment. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to do a round at some point in the middle of 2021 to then do a refresh 
Um, and he was like, I strongly advise you to spend the money on the refresh and then do the round. And I was like very nervous about that because it's expensive. You know, I mean, it can be anywhere from like minimum sort of 50 all the way to like 150, right? Like it's expensive to do this kind of brand work. And I am really appreciative for that advice. It, he, he kind of got me to bite the bullet faster than I would have. I think it helped with a lot of, you know, excitement and energy when it came to fundraising. You know, I think it, you might say sort of like, I need to raise the money to build out the vision. But honestly, if you're already building out the vision, it's much easier for investors to get excited about it. I don't know if you had a similar experience at all or if it affected you guys in terms of fundraising. But I would say that there are some things that, you know, I have a pretty good eye. I am not a uh, package designer. And I, you know, it's you're too close to it as a founder to really be able to look at the brand and the messaging and the packaging. You know, I had Jolene on from the Working Assembly a couple of episodes ago who leads the agency that did the work and it's something that I'm so incredibly happy that we did. Um, anything that you would say to that as founders, you know, think about either that they're planning on a, a refresh or, you know, getting started on finding someone to help them, you know, with the brand strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, for us, we are really used to doing a lot with a little, like mm -hmm. we really yeah. started the business and, you know, raised a lot of small checks. And, you know, mm -hmm. honestly, at the time that we were kind of launching into this, paying for and launching into this rebrand, we were actually not in a great financial position either. We were mm -hmm. somewhat cash tight. Um, but, you know, I, I, this is something I applaud Patrick for, you know, again, uh, best idea wins. Mm -hmm. I was, I was definitely more on the fence myself, Allie as well. Um, mm -hmm. but Patrick, you know, really felt strongly about it. And I, once we got into the process, I didn't have a doubt um, because yeah. the amount what, when you step back and take a look at your category and you and you compare stories, compare product, um, it really helps to just think about how does my how does my package tell the story? If somebody mm -hmm. has literally 0.5 seconds, how can I get them to pick up this bag? Yeah. And that's you know what we did. We laid out the just like anyone does in a plan, like the, our retailers doing a planogram. We laid out all the different competition and what they focus on what's their hierarchy what are they focused mm. on communicating and we said hey our differentiation is that we're human-centered like our product's right. better and we're human-centered let's illustrate the farmer on every single package that's so um, cool and have them sign every single package and you know that and focus on the farm because nobody else has a person on their bag mm -hmm. uh so yeah i think i think just being able to step back from it and make that investment I, I was not, I, I have to applaud Patrick for pushing us through with that. Um, and I think it made a huge difference in our 2020 and definitely in our 2021. You know, it's such a good, it's, it's so, that is so important to, you know, we don't, we don't want to look around too much because it's just un, unfun to look at the competition for a lot of us. And, you know, I always say like, we don't even really have competition because like there's no one else doing exactly what we're doing. But obviously we do have a couple of different sets where if we get put into the set, someone is leaving the set. So it is good to know who are you going to be next to, 
you know, or who would you be replacing or who would be replacing you? And I think that's a really cool idea to just look at a planogram and see, you know, does your package look just like theirs, except it's a little more expensive? That's probably going to be not great. But to figure out in tandem what other, you know, what you're next to with like, what's your core, core value, um, and then put it front and center. That's really freaking cool. All right. Last question, because I don't want to be late for Armin. Patrick, for you, best, you know, I mean, you gave some really good advice already with the be passionate, but not emotional. Is there another sort of word of wisdom that either you wish you would have gotten or you did get, or, you know, you just want people a couple of years behind you to, to keep in mind as they, as they build? Yeah. Um, just to, to know that, you know, you are the, you as the founder and entrepreneur are the number one expert on your business. Um, other, other people may have been there before they may give great advice, um, and, and really incorporate that advice, you know, listen to different advisors that are saying the opposite thing. Um, but in the end, trust your gut and you know, your business better than anybody else. Awesome. And Alex, I have a similar question for you, but a little bit different. What's been sort of the biggest surprise for you, both good and bad? Um, I mean, I guess just I, I didn't come from a family that did agriculture. So I have been, I guess, a little distraught on just how fragmented uh, agriculture is in the U.S., but I've been inspired by how strong it is still mm-hmm. uh, and how, you know, well and how how great the produce is. Um, I guess that's probably what would be, you know, maybe the the bad surprise. I guess what surprised me in a good way um, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I'm just, I'm, I'm consistently just amazed that people love our product. I don't know. Maybe it's because we were just like started so small, mm-hmm. but the fact that people believe in what we believe, um, I don't know. I feel like that's pretty a normal founder thing to say, but, uh, it's, uh, no, it's what it, gets us, you know, I think my guest last week, Noah was saying like, this is not that much fun. And we all know that like, the odds are very much stacked against us. So the things that make it truly joyful are that there are people out there whose lives you're making better. And when you make someone's life better, they love you for it and they love your product. And that, that is the whole thing. You know, I I think we had, we had a a blueberry farmer in Oregon. Now I can think of an actual story, uh, Vern Gingrich. uh, And he gave every one of his employees at his Christmas party, a a bag of our fruit and said, Uh this is, this is what, is what your work builds. It builds great things. And uh, mm. to have him take ownership of him being on the bag yeah, uh, and then give that back to his his team, um, you know, that works so hard in Canby, Oregon, uh, that kind of came full circle. That like, yeah. you know, we're building something that, you know, we're the orchestrators of, but we're not the faces of. Yeah. Um, and I, You're like I, the I, Intel chip of local exactly. produce. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah. Well, you, yeah. Can, you can also yeah. take that one. <laughs> I'm going to copy paste and Starcross lovers <laughs> slash Intel chip. Um, all right, guys. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on. You know, you have you have two big stakeholders that you are making very happy. The people who care a lot about eating local, but also 
you really are providing a lot for the farmers that you work with. And, you know, that's hugely commendable. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for doing what you do. Um, Armin, thank you for engineering as always. Everyone listening, sealtheseasons.com. When will the D to C part be ready? Uh, by hopefully by Christmas, but definitely okay. by the new year. Uh, okay. We are hard, hard at work coding it out now. Awesome. All right. And for all you listeners, thank you as always. And um, next week I have my target buyer that I've been talking about for the last year. Um, he's no longer there, but now he can talk about all of the target secrets. <laughs> so um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.